Hi everyone, welcome to our very first podcast episode with Dr. Dawn. Uh, we would like to um, introduce our wonderful guest, Dr. Dawn. Um, she is a child psychiatrist and I'll let her um, introduce herself a little bit more. Well, thank you so much, Angela, for having me here, you and Sarah. It is such a pleasure being here, and I am so happy and honored to be your first guest of such a well-most-needed um, segment or, you know, topic of talking about various, um, you know, having various conversations about that affects minorities. So I am just so honored. Uh, my name is Dr. Dawn Brown. I am a double board certified child lesson and adult psychiatrist. I'm also a sports psychiatrist. Uh, I actually have um, five clinics that I serve um, in different socioeconomical communities. I'm medically licensed in six states. Um, my baby is ADC Wellness Center in Houston, Texas, and I've been open for seven years. I've actually turned that into a virtual practice so I can meet the needs of more people. And I also have a concierge practice for elite athletes um, in the position of collegiate, those who are professional, um, Olympians, as well as retired athletes um, for mental health. I do, I have my own podcast show. I have a live show that talks about mental health um, and social, and social um, topics that are, you know, that are kind of out in hot topics that relates to everyone um, and books and ADHD products. So I, I, I would say that I'm a huge promoter and advocate um, for mental health, um, but I'm also a dog owner. I have three Tory Yorkies. I live in Houston. I love to hang out with friends. I enjoy going to church and I'm a huge lover of my family um, and travel as well. So <laughs> thanks for having me on here. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Don. Uh, we are really happy to have you as our very first guest. Uh, so I guess we'll just go ahead and get uh, jump right into the questions. So um, 2020 was a very difficult year for many people, um, not only with the pandemic, but also um, the acts of police br brutality that we would see on the media. Um, so how is the mental health of black and brown children being affected by the racial injustices published by the media on a daily basis? It's, it's a very huge threat. It's, it's actually very dangerous. When you're, when you're talking about just um, the primitive um, definition of child development, right? It's about exposures. It's about a continuum path of how a child may learn information, process information, and then take the information from their internal external environment, try to understand it and actually have an action to that information as well. So how they may treat others based on that, right? So for an example, I mean, it's significant, it's huge, and it can be dangerous if um, a child is viewing images or seeing people of, of power um, evoke harmful acts on a certain population, whether they may be them or another culture, and what they're, how they're understanding that. Um, so if you're talking about black and brown children, um, I would say that it, this is a very dangerous time for us. It is a very fearful time for us. Um, there are a lot of triggers that can be involved in this, and it actually is a lasting impression on that child's life um, in the present and as, as well as the future. If they're looking at, for example, a law enforcement, 
right officer that has actually harmed and you know they're there to protect and serve right and they should yeah. be also protecting yeah. and serving whoever they're approaching um and they're seeing that their power or their role is justified by someone not making it home at night and they're actually seeing that violence what do they think about themselves? What do they think about their father? What do they think about their brother, their mother, their sister, whomever, right? Because mm -hmm. that person on TV looks like me or looks like someone I know, or I've had experiences where I've seen this over and over again as well. You also look at other kids of non-minority populations or other minority populations that may not, you know, we're talking about just about black and brown, but other mm -hmm. um, non-minority populations a case in point was seen in the, the recent California incident where the, the child with who had Preston is his name, um, who has, um, you know, his father said he has autistic features as well as ADHD. And you saw the, you know, the, the white child across the street run, like he ran when he yes. saw Preston was being attacked. I mean, so there's an innocence where children don't necessarily see color until we actually show them that there's a difference, right? Yeah. There's a historical perspective to this as well, and I'm sure you probably asked me about it, but I, I think it's relevant to your question. When you look at the historical, historical social perspective, there is actually a psychologist um, by the name of Mamie um, Phipps Clark, who actually was a Black female psychologist. She was the first to graduate from Columbia University as a Black woman who earned her PhD there. She was actually involved in the Brown versus education case back in the 1950s, where she actually um, you know, showed Black children four dolls. And the only difference in their presentation of these dolls was the color of the dolls. And she would ask questions such as, you know, what doll is a nice doll? Or what doll will you play with, right? What doll is the good doll? And she actually proved her theory that the Black child, most of the Black children chose the white doll right so she actually proved that yes that, that there are racial uh, prejudice and, and discrimination causes black children even to develop um, a sense of inferiority for example yeah. or negative self-image because they're not choosing themselves even in adult mm -hmm. in a playful manner so this is very dangerous and what's also dangerous is that what happens after they see, what happens after the exposures, right? Are they having the conversations um, with teachers if they're showing them something or something happens at school? They're having the conversation, they're seeing something on a TV and you know, are the parents talking to the children or their siblings talking to you know, these young children about what they're seeing, trying to understand what they're how they're processing it. And then also making sure that the intent behind there um, is a good intent. So if something is being displayed that's harmful and that is impacting them, that they feel validated in that moment and having that type of conversation. So it, yeah. it, it, it plays a significant role, Angela, on our black and brown children when they're seeing a lot of violence that's happening right now um, in the media. And, and don't Definitely. be mistaken, this has just been exposed, but this has been happening for years. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just now happening, you know, being recorded with the yeah, broadcasted to the world right and even that even with the evidence that we're seeing yet and still there have been some you know cases of saying people's names right there's power in the saying their names movement where their deaths have not been justified they will never be justified because they were wrongfully murdered or killed and so you know the legal the legal system has not accounted for their deaths even with the evidence so what does that tell our kids? It's very dangerous. Yeah. And um, 
So yes, it does have a lasting impact and it can be a very negative impact on not just the individual, but the entire community, mm -hmm. culture. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that, Dr. Dawn. Um, that is a very important subject that I feel like um, we definitely need to address um, to protect our children. Um, and so I wanted to actually jump off of your um, discussion about Preston, who was um, beaten by a police officer in California. Um, so how would you say, how are children with disabilities being affected by police brutality? And what can be done to change that? You know, I, part of it, it so th there's so many levels to this, right? There's so many levels to this. One is just a lack of education. Another is a lack of empathy, even if you do know. Right. If someone is not obeying a command, then there's a reason behind that. I don't care mm -hmm. if you're at the moment you're serving a role like surgeons. You know, they're, they're, they serve the role, you know, trauma surgeons to save lives and they have mm -hmm. to act within the command. And there's so many levels to this in order to make sure that they save lives. I believe that that should be the level of training that officers in law enforcement should have based upon, you know, their role. It's not enough to say, you know, this person got on the, didn't, um, you know, obey my command and therefore became a threat. No, that's not a definition of what a threat is. And that's what training should not involve, right? Yeah. So one is the training. It, it, we need to have more training from people like me that um, are able to connect directly um, to police officers to make sure that they understand this is what uh, a person with autistic of disabilities may present. And it's a spectrum. So they're mm -hmm. not gonna have the same one, two, three, you know, type of, of, of appearance or engagement, but it's a spectrum. So these are the variances that, you know, they may present with. Now it's also up to the police department to make sure that if they feel that this is a threatful situation, that they're acting within the threat of the safety of that person. So that's another degree of it to it and a layer that we can provide this information um, to assist with that type of training. And then they need to be accountable and held accountable as well. So if something is seen that there's a problem and it's a problem based upon the psychological perspective of a mental provider, a community advocate, a police um, supervisor, then it should be a problem for that police officer who did that type of behavior, enacting a type of behavior, and they should be held accountable right then and there. They shouldn't have to wait for it to show up on a TV, right? Yes. Held accountable then, right then and there. Um, hopefully it doesn't get to that point, but accountability does matter because we all know that everyone doesn't abide by the law, even those in the law, unfortunately. Um, and then there needs to be accountability, not just locally or you know, one-on-one, -on -one, but federal mandates, legislation, for example, funding for mm -hmm. these things to take place, right? So when we say to fund the police or you know, different programs of, of against the Asian community and all of these type of factors, we're not saying take away the funding so that you can't have police you know, uh, law enforcement. I'm not saying all police are bad either. I have really good friends who are the law enforcement. We're talking about those who don't obey their own role and taking the power in their role to their advantage and manipulating it. And therefore people are not getting home at night. And so, you know, it's important that their services are provided, but they need to be funded in order for them to yeah. occur. And also the police need to be having their own therapy and their own mental health treatment, because I'm sure every police officer, if they've been exposed to some degree of trauma, has a high risk of developing P 
PTSD, anxiety, insomnia, depression, to where it affects their ability to perform right or act responsibly. You know what I'm saying? So all yeah. of those things are important. And then explaining psycho psychology. Psychology. psychology is involved in everything we do. So classical conditioning and impl implicit bias is like classical conditioning over and over again. If in your mind you've had experience and they might not have been positive experience with an Asian community, for example, and then you see an Asian person, you're likely to act based upon what you've seen and how you're justifying your actions as well by someone else's actions. That's just yeah. human nature. So in order to counteract that, we need information, education, especially if they're gonna be serving in those roles. And that needs to be on a continuum, just like impl implicit bias happens on a continuum. These need to be continued services. It doesn't just need to occur to become a police officer, to become certified in law enforcement, but they need to be follow-up regular quarterly um, appoint, you know, seminars, weekly therapy appointments, there needs to be some type of accountability and therapy services in place for people who are in those positions as well. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on in how we can help train yeah. um, those who have this, you know, the communities that are supposed to be protecting us and they're not responding the way that they want to respond, especially if they have developmental disabilities or that person's not in their right mind. You know, you cannot assume that they are. And you can't assume that even if they don't have a disability and they are, you know, they're, they're afraid. A lot of these people run away from you because they're scared. Yeah. And who wouldn't be when, with everything that you see on TV. Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So what type of questions can we ask in the here the moment? You know, sir, do you have a disability? Or sir, can you understand what I'm saying in a nice manner, not a shouting manner, right? Why do you have to yeah. shout at somebody? If, especially if they're not following your command after the third time, right? Yeah. I mean, coming up with some type of, you know, um, protocol to assess if, first of all, someone can even process what you're saying and understand what you're saying, and then escalate the situation before it even gets to that point. So you're not approaching them based upon being a threat, but you're approaching them based upon evaluating the situation first to understand who you're meeting and then, you know, go from there. Um, yeah, so many. Yeah, I think you also brought up a good point that some of the disabilities are not, uh, you can't just tell people have disabilities based on looking at them. So it's not like most of the disabilities are visible to people and just like approaching them that way would be, would cause more harm than, um, being able to help them with that. That's right. You're exactly right. And disabilities can affect any race, any culture, any socioeconomical status, right? So it just lets you know to what level, what degree, or what perspective that person has on whoever they're approaching and the problems that they need to get taken care of. Because obviously this was a 13 year old child, first of all, the child was black. And you didn't even get to the disability part because you're still on the child being black part, right? So yeah. where in there are you even questioning if that child's not responding out of fear or if they have a disability, you're actually you know, practicing prejudice and you're discriminating that, that type of experience just based on those racism as well as being a child. Then mm -hmm. that's very dangerous and it's very unfortunate. Um, 
So we even get to do disability part on that case. So it's it's scary, but there is hope. And I think, you know, having platforms like yours and starting this series and talking about it and um, reaching the ears of people who need to hear this is a huge help um, to start having these conversations and making and start, you know, putting these conversations into action so that change and policy makers roles can, you know, can actually, um, you know, allow these changes to happen and our kids can come home at night and not be afraid and scared. Yep. You're in the color of the skin. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Thank you so much yeah. for that, Dr. John. Yes, definitely. Yeah, now speaking about the socioeconomic determinants of health, we know that this is such a broad topic um, affecting um, the minorities' populations uh, disproportionately. So, how, how do you think that the social factors, such as income level, uh, education, and even access to care, affect the mental health of marginalized communities? You know, there's been a lot of studies on this and let's take in consideration the frog pond effect. I mean, I talked about this in another interview recently where you have certain communities. So, so let's say you have a community where um, the expectation for academic excellence is a part of this actual community. So schools are gonna likely be in line with that expectation, right? And so if you have a disability or if you have a mental health condition or whatever, you, you may have a medical ailment that interferes with your ability to get a good education, yet you're at a good school, you're likely to stick out, right? Because you're not necessarily a part of that excellence because something is you know, preventing you from being able to reach that. And then you talk about the other community of low socioeconomical that's underserved, underfunded, um, under um, supported, right? Um, they don't have the resources, tutorial resources or community centers or school programming. And they have outdated books that they're teaching from. And everyone is kind of on, you know, kind of just this pace where, hey, you just get a C, you know, we'll, we'll make sure that, you know, you pass or if you can't read, it's okay. We'll just make sure, you, you know, you know that the expectation is not there then that actually is dangerous and, and actually perpetuates further problems for those children that are coming out of that school as well. Right. So, you know, funding matters, um, support matters, um, making sure that our school system is held accountable matters. And that actually does play a role on mental health as well as lifelong functioning and survival. Um, the misdiagnosis of mental health and in relation to going from what we call the school pipeline to prison as well. And I'm a, you know, I'm an ADHD expert, huge advocate of ADHD, I have ADHD myself. Oftentimes when that's underdiagnosed, misdiagnosed, therefore not managed or treated, that doesn't directly have a correlation with violence. It has a direct correlation with school dropout rates or not, not finishing school, um, increased risk of substance abuse, um, divorce, mm -hmm. higher divorce rates, right? Um, multiple job failures. And that may lead to violence or trying to make, you know, trying to make sure I survive or my family survive. I mean, 40% of inmates have ADHD. Comparison to 25%, which is the prevalence of all adults, children, and adolescents, 25%. So, I mean, that's a huge disparity there, right? Right. So, you know, it, <laughs> I mean, the numbers is there, the, the, the numbers are there. We have the evidence. How are we going to put the numbers and, and take all the evidence we have 
and, and put them into place to where we're creating action so that this no longer becomes a problem and our children no longer are a part of that, you know, become a statistic. I'm, I'm, con I'm concerned because a lot of this plays a role in, you know, racial disparities, um, social economical differences, the lack of insurance coverage or government funded insurance where they're not being able to meet the right type of providers that can, you know, help them. You know, there's mm -hmm. so many levels to this. So yes, I know, Sarah, it is a general question, but, you know, I think it's a very good question um, because there's different levels to this that we really have to tackle and address. Um, because it can really play a role in how a, a, a child in, in their journey to adulthood, it can. Right. And yeah. um, based off of that, um, my question, um, so speaking of environmental um, and the circumstances you grow up uh, and the family you have, so how does childhood mental health um, and the environment that you grow up um, affect the future as an adult? Um, specifically for minorities communities? Yeah, well, when you talk about minority communities in the United States, you know, we're talking about a, a, a long history of distrust, especially when you're talking about mental health. That's why the APA came out early this year, apologizing to the biopic communities, Black, um, Indigenous um, communities of color, right? And because they weren't there to provide adequate and equitable services to those who have mental health. It was more or less the racial discrimination and the racial disparities that played a role and people who needed help didn't receive it, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have these organizations that weren't there and th that builds distrust. So when you're talking about mental health or any type of help, that actually raises a red flag for many minority communities because of the lack of distrust, the lack of access, the lack of people that look like us in these roles, right? Um, yeah. the, lack of funding, the lack of treatment services. Oh, you're just filling me up with drugs because, you know, I, and then you're trying to change who I am just because distrust in so many other ways and facets of their lives, right? That, that also tie into their health. Chronic conditions like diabetes and high blood pressure can lead to death if you don't manage it. So why, you know, why would I see a doctor, right? Or just the mentality of, well, I'm in my community, let's just pull up our bootstraps. I'm gonna be okay. We're not gonna necessarily get treatment even from the, the individual's experience, right? And not wanting to get treatment or not used to getting treatment. When we interact with our providers, we're not asking the right questions. How are you sleeping? Mm -hmm. well, you know, I'm not sleeping well, but we don't go further to understand they may have sleep apnea and that predisposes them to other types of concerns and also have a, a you know a, a factor that plays a role in their long of their, their life and the longevity of their life as well, right? I mean, there's so many um, ways that we can communicate better, um, that we can fund um, situations better, that we can actually meet people where they are and not be a non-threatening manner to where you know people are more likely to get help, regardless of who's on the other side and what color they are and what role they play. It's all about approaching people as their human and respect and dignity and having conversations to where you're not looking at their skin color. You're not looking at how much money they have. You're looking at what they're coming to you with. And this is a problem for my mental health. And this is the symptom that you would see in any other race and culture. And how can you help me? So it, 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 it's, it, it's, it's, it plays a role 
especially for people like me in my position that can help individuals as well. Um, so, you know, there's different, there's different, you know, perspectives on this and how we can better this. Um, we just got to do it. We have to do it. Yes. Yeah. And I think adding to that, um, I was reviewing a study that showed that physicians um, from specifically the emergency department, um, looking at the skin color um, of and the socioeconomic status of patients who are coming from disadvantaged background or the black or Hispanics or minority groups, they often are believed that these people are wanting medications coming to the ER for addiction purposes instead of trying to communicate with them about their health problems. And um, they often prevent them from going farther and explaining and opening up with the provider. Right. You're exactly right. I read the same study and I believe the stat, one of the stats was like 50% were going untreated. And it, it, just one example, because this is a, this doesn't generalize our entire experience and I'm not here representing everyone's experience if they're black female, but I will say this, it is not unlikely to be a, a, a person of color to go to an emergency room when you've been experiencing something for years. Right, because of so much of the stigma and the distrust and this and that and the other. So that is the time to explore. And that is the time to say, I'm glad you're here. How can I be a service to you? And guess what? If they are having addiction problem, they're having a problem. Let's recognize that as a problem. So how can we establish them and set them up to make sure that they do get the services that they need and they're likely to go to the place that they need to go to, to get help, right? Because they are there for a reason. So instead of judging them, recognize that they're there and how we can help them. So I, I definitely agree with that. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yes. And I think you really highlight as well the need for uh, representation in medicine. We need more doctors that look like us that will understand our experience. Um, and yeah, I, that, that can be a whole other podcast episode, but literally I'm glad that you um, brought that up because that is something that is not really talked about. And also like the, the cultural competencies of physicians that we have now, um, it's really disadvantaging um, community, black and brown communities, marginalized communities, people with disabilities, um, just all around people are being affected by um, the lack of education on um, the human body outside of um, the white perspective. That's right. I, I, I completely agree. And, and I also see that, you know, we go to people where they're most comfortable. I, I, I always say that. So, you know, for me, it'll be church, right? Mm -hmm. um, I have to, yeah. And so that's where I'm most comfortable. That's where I do a lot of education. That's where I see, receive information. That's how I found my doctors. And so, I'm, you know, that's where it started. Um, that's important as well. And I also wanna highlight this is that, you know, and, and I should have made this point earlier, when we're looking at what's going on in the Asian community and how they're being targeted for something very unrelated to a person walking down the street who just happens to be Asian. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't make any sense. It's very ignorant and it's very, um, I mean, I I'm just like, what, what is going on? <laughs> What's happening to our humanity? You know, it when doesn't we're make sense at all. Right, harming someone and they mm -hmm. have no connection to what, what's going on worldwide, right? So it's, right. it's a perception of where we're getting our information, you know, how we're able to understand if what we're getting is good information, right? 
and, and how that's furthered, um, um, you know, implemented in our lives too. That's why I always say that communication, having conversation, having conversation, especially with kids and how they're processing it so that they don't leave that conversation with a different thought that was not intended and that they received on their own that could have a negative impact on them. It is so important. It is so important to be open and having these discussions, even if it doesn't feel comfortable. Yeah. 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 I agree. Thank you so much, Dr. Dunn. Uh, we have just one final question for you, and this is kind of just to support everyone as we live through this pandemic. Um, so what can we do to maintain a better mental state through the pandemic? You know, I always say, what can we do naturally, right? We're human beings. So let's first recognize that simple fact that we are human beings and our physical um, health is equally as important as our mental emotional health. So in order to make sure that those are in good shape, we have to get good sleep, we have to eat healthy, we need to exercise, we need to get out of the house because we're not designed to hibernate, we need to communicate regularly because we're social beings, we need to touch the people that love us and that we love them because we actually, that's a part of healing as well, right? And we yeah. need to um, get involved in things that are self-worth. So if that's working, you know, from home or going to work, you know, that where you feel comfortable and, and how they're mandating standards, you know, all those things are important for our emotion, emotional health, our mental health, as well as our physical health. Um, and it should be routine and it should be structured. So if it's occurring, you know, regularly, that's, you know, we're, we're structuring it to where we're getting all these things and creating a balance and it's in a routine, therefore it's happening over and over again, that is going to be the best tool and weapon, if you will, that we have, that we can use to assist with protecting our mental health and um, protecting our emotional health and our, our physical health and overall health as well. Because every, you know, emotional mental health does affect our physical and if it's physical effects are emotional, right? So they're all in one accord. So we cannot just look at one thing and not necessarily account, be accountable for the other parts of health as well. Um, yeah. So I would recommend just having structure, having routine and doing what's natural to what our bodies love. You know, that's what's going to be helpful in maintaining uh, proper mental health during this time of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. And uh, lastly, to, final, to finalize all this conversation, um, I was wondering if you have any recommendations uh, in terms of mental health resources for uh, the minority groups or people who might not have access to providers or have, have an insurance to contact um, a psychologist or going on therapies. Yes, so honestly, I believe in God and Google. I, I'm just being keeping it real um, because on there you can actually plug in keywords. So, you know, for example, there is a, you know, blackdoctors.org for African Americans. There's Asian Pacific Islanders um, for a certain group of Asians. Um, you know, there's, there's different groups and community um, that advocate and provide services for, um, for mental health wellness. But if you Google mental health, your zip code, you will come up with what's local to you. And I think that's important, right? And mm -hmm. so you have a lot of organizations that are different places, but they're limited in what they can provide. 
I, I find that if you go to Google, let's use our, you know, our good social media networks, put your zip code in and, you know, put the keywords in, you can definitely find um, websites that will be equitable um, to help service you. But if you're looking at just nationwide websites, I like psychologytoday.com. I like um, attitudemag.com for ADHD, um, blackdoctor.org for any type of mental health, if African-American, um, Asian mental health, which is, a, I believe they're in, based in Minnesota, um, for those groups of, um, that actually service um, specific Asians uh, groups. Um, there's, there's so many uh, Hispanic groups here in Houston, um, Hispanic, um, I think it's HispanicMentalHealth.com or .org as well. So there, there, there are a lot of groups, but in order to find someone that's local and that can really help you, I, I would use Google. And I think you can't go wrong with that. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much, so Dr. Don. You're welcome. There is one more resource that I have that I think would be helpful during this time. Um, I have some anti-racism resources on my Instagram and I can send that to you, Angela and Sarah. Um, but yeah. I think it's like three pages and I didn't put it together myself. It's actually been passed along in the community. And there are awesome resources about for the biopic community, you know, to, to basically for non-minorities to learn how they to teach their children to be anti-racist. And after recognizing what they are doing to practice anti-racism as well. And there's a list and list, a long list of, of books and online sites and, and groups, um, seminars that they could take advantage of to assist with this. It's, it, you know, community, it really does matter. We do have a voice and it's sound voice and it changes policies. It, it changes how things are viewed, um, what's displayed on TV. I mean, the community voice is powerful. And I think that if we are able to, you know, provide those type of services in the community such as that, we can make some headway, some positive headway um, in the direction we want to go. So want to make Definitely. sure. I yes. Yeah, that seems like a great resource. Um, it does, it starts with the kids, right? Um, we don't, we don't want these negative, um, these biases to, to live on into adulthood. Um, so thank you so much for that. Uh, we really appreciate you um, being on our podcast and our very first guest. Um, we had such yes. an amazing conversation and you gave us so much information and so many great resources that we can provide to um, anyone out there who's listening to our podcast and wants to learn more about um, the injustices that minority groups face in the United States. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Honored to be here. Yeah, thank you very much again for your time. And we will include all the resources uh, written on the podcast. So everyone could have access to those and also Dr. Brown's Instagram page. Please, and I'm here, I'm here to serve. So if there's anything that you all want to email or drop in my DM and have questions, that's what I do. So you're not bothering me. That's why I'm here and we can have a dialogue. We can have a conversation about it. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>